We are continuing on in Hebrews chapter 12 today. And today we come to an interesting topic, discipline, particularly God's discipline. Now, depending on your background and your thoughts on the word discipline, particularly divine discipline, you may be feeling several different things right now. One, you may be thinking, well, thank goodness. It's about time this church talked about discipline and got got some order around here. Or you could be thinking, on the other hand, oh no, I already feel guilty and in trouble as it is. Please don't go here. Or somewhere in between. Now, I get this is a topic that comes with baggage for some people. So my commitment to you, as always, is to talk about discipline from Hebrews chapter 12 in the same way that I, I think and the best I can discern the pastor who wrote Hebrews talked about it. My hope is to help us understand God's discipline and explore a few questions. Like, why does God discipline his children? And what is the result of it? So first, let's get our bearings from the last couple weeks in Hebrews. We're thick in the middle of Hebrews chapter 12, which is the pinnacle of the book because it's where this call to endure climaxes for the church and reaches its peak. If you remember chapter 11, or the Faith Hall of Fame that looks back at all of Israel's history of saints, um, has reminded the church of their heritage, of where they've come from, of those who have gone before them and gone before us, and have kept the faith in times of trial, and even to the point of death. And their faith inspires us and the church in Hebrews uh, to, to press on and encourages them that, um, that God is with them. Yet Hebrews makes the greater point at the outset of chapter 12, urging the church not to, not to focus on the Hall of Fame of Saints, although they are helpful, but to focus on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of their faith. And the faithfulness of the saints in chapter 11 that Bree shared on, on last week, ending in Rahab, um, it's, it's wonderful. But as, as she said, it's peanuts when we compare it to Jesus and his faithfulness. And if you recall from two weeks ago, chapter 12 starts out with the imagery of an athletic race. The life of faith is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And our motivation to keep our pace is fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is our motivation because he endured death and shame for the joy set before him, which is to bring his people, all who receive him, home into his kingdom. But how do we do it? How do we continue fixing our eyes on Jesus and persevere in this marathon? It's not easy. And in this middle section of Hebrews 12, uh, we learn that there's, there's one thing we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and that's discipline. Because fixing our eyes on Jesus doesn't happen by accident. We don't slide into it. We need training. We need guidance. It is far too easy for us to fix our eyes on everything but Jesus, who is the greatest lover of our souls. So here's the big idea today. God's discipline refocuses our eyes on Jesus and leads us into his joy. God's discipline refocuses our eyes on Jesus and leads us into his joy. We're going to explore three pretty simple questions around that topic. First, what is God's discipline? Second, what is the fruit of God's discipline? What is the result? And third, what does it look like when we reject 
God's discipline. So first, what is God's discipline? Well, Hebrews starts out by going to the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, and then explaining it from there to us. So we're going to look at the same thing in Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 8. Let me read that for us. And you have forgotten, and have you forgotten, the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son and daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the first thing to hear here is that God's discipline is relational. Hebrews uses the obvious family metaphor to describe this relational nature. God disciplines us as a loving father disciplines his children. That's the flow of thought. And this context of parental, parental love is essential, absolutely essential for our understanding. Now, regardless of our different family experiences with discipline and views about discipline and children, which I'm sure there are many, the point that Hebrews is making, I believe, will ring true to all of us. Track with me for a second. On the one hand, many of us have seen the destructive effects of physical abuse and violence in our society, particularly towards children. Uh, sometimes this type of abuse is labeled discipline, which has led many to the conclusion that it's wrong to discipline children altogether. Let's just get rid of it. Yet on the other hand, we are also abundantly aware of the perils of a complete lack of discipline, of a different type of cruelty, whereby a detached parent leaves the child with no boundaries or guidance, leaving them to navigate the world on their own and defend for, and defend for themselves. I think we can agree that discipline coming from a truly loving parent needs to fall somewhere in the middle of these two. And Hebrews is telling us God's discipline is just this. It's an expression of his love. It's an expression of love from a heavenly father who does not abuse us, who does not spoil us or ignore us and leave us to fend for ourselves. He doesn't do any of those things. God's discipline is that of a loving father who eagerly desires his children to walk in obedience and to mature so that they can make wise decisions on their own. It's his fatherly guidance that directs our wayward hearts back to him, that refocuses our eyes on Jesus when they get a little bit fuzzy. As one commentator remarked, I'd rather be in the hands of a father than of a distant, careless bureaucrat. Okay, second, so first thing, God's discipline is relational. Second thing, God's discipline is not retribution from sin. It isn't punishment for wrongdoing. It's not punitive in that sense. When the New Testament speaks of God's punishment for sin, it's in a different context. It's in the context of punishment beyond physical death, and it's for those who refuse to repent before Christ. There is punishment for sin, for the unrepentant, but it's a whole different category from God's discipline. When the New Testament speaks of God's discipline instead, like you hear in Hebrews 12, it's about strengthening us, maturing us, and enabling us uh, to walk with Christ. 
It is, as verse 10 says, for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Okay, third thing, and this is one that might make us squirm. God's discipline is uncomfortable. It can be even painful. It's not punishment, but that doesn't mean it's not difficult. Let's look at verse 11 together, Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Gareth Cockerell helpfully puts words around God's discipline like this. It's a great name. God's discipline is not punishment for the sin from which Christ has cleansed the church, nor is it merely training or instruction in a general sense. It's God's use of opposition to fortify his sons and daughters in the way of obedience. It's God's use of opposition to fortify his sons and daughters in the way of obedience. Hebrews 12 has used two different metaphors, the athlete running the race and the parent-child relationship to explain the life of faith and the discipline required for endurance for us. Those are the two images we're, we're given. And these metaphors help us understand God's use of opposition to build up his children as well. Now, if you've played competitive sports, you will know the value of facing difficult, painful opposition in training and practice. In my own athletic career, it was the drill my coach Eric called side to sides. I played tennis in high school, and this drill was particularly grueling. Coach Eric would feed one ball to the far right corner of the tennis court, in the very corner, and you have to run over there. And right before you were about to hit the ball, he'd feed another ball in the very opposite corner on the far end of the court, and you'd have to run back and hit that one before it hit the ground, side to side, side to side. It was brutal, and if one hit the ground, then you had to do push-ups while you waited in line. It was terrible. Um, why would he do this, right? Why would he do this? And even more, why would my parents pay him to do this? Seems ridiculous. Um, it's the same reason people pay personal trainers to push them to their limits, to where it burns, to where it hurts, right? Because discipline in the world of athletics is how the athlete is prepared to succeed, to endure. When things are difficult in a race or a tennis match or the game, discipline is what enables the athlete and the Christian to endure. The family metaphor adds more light for us. A loving, a loving parent corrects a child when they're in danger. Stop, don't run into the street. A loving parent rebukes a child when they, when they behave in destructive ways. This is my little boy. Sometimes, our tod uh, as toddlers do, Elliot will yell at the top of his lungs uh, at me or at Deanna. When, when he really wants something, but he's not getting it, like popcorn. And if I'm holding it, he might even start hitting me in the face. It's a very unpleasant experience. <laughs> Some of you have been hit in the face by Elliot, maybe, <laughs> in kids' church. Well, what do we do? Because we love him, we stop what we're doing, we slow down, and we offer him our presence, and we correct him. Elliot, buddy, you can't yell at mom and, or dad. That's not how we talk to each other. We're not going to respond to you yelling at us. And then we help him try again. This is discipline. We oppose his attempt to get popcorn through screaming and hitting. 
because we love him and are training him to behave in a way that respects and loves other people. And this is, of course, a parent's desire in disciplining their children, to train them in ways that will strengthen and fortify their character. The metaphors are imperfect, of course, but they help us get a sense of what Hebrews is talking about. When we suffer for following Christ, when we face opposition or trial because of the name of Jesus, God's discipline is God's use of the opposition to strengthen us and develop our character to look more like Jesus. Well, next, what is the fruit of God's discipline? We've seen this already a little bit. God's discipline yields in us Christian character. Hebrews says it like this, again in verse 10 and 11. He disciplines, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And then in verse 14, we hear, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we learn that God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his very holiness. And it's sharing in his holiness that enables us to see the Lord rightly. So the fruit and the end result is this sharing in God's holiness, bearing the peaceful fruit of righteousness and refocusing our eyes on Jesus so that we may indeed see him well. Our vision statement at St. Peter's is about seeing, it's that we see Jesus alive in our city, renewing everything for God's glory. We see Jesus alive in our city, renewing everything for God's glory. Do you want that? Do you long for that? And do you see Jesus alive in our city, renewing things? To be honest, some days I do, I do. And some days I don't. Some days I walk down the street in downtown Vancouver and I see nothing but brokenness. I hear angry conversations and bitter conversations on the street. I can see and smell nothing but despair and homelessness. I see the seemingly successful people running around with earbuds in, looking very stressed and very lonely. I see people looking for meaning in their lives and purpose and relief from the harshness of the world in all sorts of dark places and dead-end roads. On these types of days, though, the most difficult part is when I get to the office and I look in the mirror and I see the earbuds in my ears and I remember my own eyes diverting from the poor on the street and realize just how much I can blend in with this harsh scene of futility. My eyes are blurry these days. I'm not seeing in focus. And I desperately need God to train my eyes, to nourish the fruit of righteousness in me, and to draw me into his holiness so that I can see him. I need God to discipline me, to take those moments of despair and pain, and through prayer and through trusting him, to turn them instead into fuel for my soul that fortifies me to walk in obedience and to be different from it that energizes me to live the gospel and to not be a part of that harsh futility, but to make eye contact and to share my life with my neighbors and to invite the barista to church. It's in submitting my despair and these dark days to God 
and choosing to walk and trust in obedience with Jesus instead that I am able to see him alive in the city, that his light penetrates into that darkness, that the clouds lift and I can see him rightly and see him in the face of those on the street, in the face of my family, and in the moments of quiet when his spirit surrounds me and whispers good things to me, that I am yours and you are mine. I can't do this on my own. I need a loving father to refocus my eyes on him. And lastly, what does it look like to reject God's discipline? Well, if discipline refocuses our eyes on Jesus and leads us into his kingdom, then rejecting it will keep us from these very things. Let's look at verses 15 to 16. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. When we reject God's discipline, when we reject God's discipline, the result is bitterness. Do you remember when you were a teenager and your parents told you no, and you were upset about it, and it seemed really unfair? Probably. Most teenagers do. For me, it was movies. I often was not permitted to see the movies that my friends were seeing because my parents felt that teenagers shouldn't be watching films with explicit sexual content and nudity. I know, it's crazy. Um, Now I cringe considering that that was countercultural in the church. But the inner response I'm wanting you to recall and to remember from your own life is the one that says, it's not fair. Why me? It's not that big of a deal. Come on. None of my friends' parents seem to care about this. You don't get it, mom or dad. You don't understand. Did you ever feel that as a teenager? Have you ever felt that about God? This is what Hebrews means by the root of bitterness in verse 15. It's a hardness, a wall, a coldness. It's when our conversations and questions with God take us in the direction of rejection instead of in the direction of trust. It begins with the why questions, right? We all have our own why questions. Why must I suffer like this? Why can't I catch a break? Why am I still sick, God? Why can't I find a spouse? Why is my marriage so hard and grueling? Why does no one seem to notice me? Now, it's important to open these questions to God. The Psalms are filled with people crying out to God, asking God all sorts of questions like this. How long, O Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Why do you hide your face from me? The questions are normal. They're okay. But here's the movement of the heart we must pay attention to next. Where do we look? Do we look side to side in comparison with our peers? If this is our reaction, it will result in bitterness and envy. Because if we're looking for it, we are sure to find ample evidence that God is unfair to us, that everyone else has it better off, and that God really isn't good after all. Seeing how our circumstances stack up against how we perceive the situations of our peers is the path to rejecting God's discipline. 
to hardening our own hearts and to ending up far from God. Do we look side to side then? Or do we look up in conversation with with God? Do we look up to Christ, who, if you recall, endured the greatest suffering and shame? This is how, as verse 15 suggests, we obtain the grace of God. When we look up, our hearts are able to accept the discipline of a loving father as gift and as life. It doesn't mean we'll accept it joyfully, maybe never joyfully, but it does mean we're extending the faith we have and offering it to God. The God who can take our meager faith, our small efforts, and plant it as a seed for something beautiful and true to grow. Scripture calls this bitterness a root because it's poison and it's lethal and it runs wide and it also also runs throughout a community. It can start with one person and spread. In Deuteronomy, uh, this is why it's in quotes, it originates in Deuteronomy. Um, Moses is connecting this root of bitterness heart posture to idolatry, to worshiping other gods. And this is surely where a stance of hardness and rejection to God will lead us, right? We're going to worship something. And Hebrews gives us two examples of this idolatry. First, it mentions sexual immorality, whereby we reject God's given guidance for sexuality and wrongly determine that our physical desires should guide our sexual ethics. And second, unholiness, like Esau, who, if you don't know the story, he sold the divine blessing promised him for a single meal. For us, what does this mean? It looks like taking the good gifts God has given us in this life, the divine blessings God provides, and removing, from that con- removing them from that context of gift. Forgetting that they're that, forgetting that there are gifts. And that means that there's a giver who loves us. Because a gift is always about relationship, right? It's, it's always about nourishing a relationship. Okay, let's recall what God's discipline is all about. Refocusing our eyes on Jesus and leading us into his joy. Let's also recall the two metaphors that Hebrews 12 has used to explain it. First, we have the athlete training and running the marathon. This highlights our side of discipline, engaging in the difficult training that God invites us into. Alistair challenged us a few weeks ago when he started Hebrews 12 to persevere in fixing our eyes on Jesus in three ways, three simple ways, scripture, community, and prayer. I know you've heard this before, and I know you'll hear it again. And I, for one, will keep beating that drum for a very long time. As the runner disciplines herself for a marathon, so we need discipline in these practices. I get that it's challenging, brutal even, to persevere and to do And that's why the other's peace is so crucial for us. And if you need help finding your way, please reach out. If you need someone to show you how to do this or what it looks like, reach out. Your community group leaders are great people to start with there. There are people in this room who want to help you refocus your eyes on Jesus by encountering him in scripture and in prayer. But the family metaphor highlights who God is when he disciplines us. The loving father steering his daughters and his sons on the path to life. 
the loving Father who has his eyes always focused on you, even when you falter, who is waiting eagerly for you to come home to him. This will always feel incomplete, this side of life, because as Ecclesiastes 3 tells us, we were born with eternity in our hearts. We're longing for that. But it will one day be complete when we stand face to face with our Savior and fully see the Lord, see him fully clear, with totally perfect vision. Do you ever dream about that experience? What it'll be like to stand before God who created you, who loves you to the point of death and has purified you and made you whole? God disciplines us in order to refocus our eyes on Jesus, who is bringing us, his beloved, home. Remember, that's the joy set before him, to bring us home. His discipline trains our actions and our desires and even our imaginations to fit with his heart. He disciplines us because we are his children whom he loves. He's a proud father. He's the proud father bending down and pulling us close and reminding us who he is and that he loves us and saying, you are mine. I've chosen you. You're just the one I want representing me in this world.